Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. The art of reinvention is central to the American experience. Pulling up stakes to pursue a new life and a new career is freedom personified. You don't have to be miserable. You can change your circumstances. You can chase a new dream. You're an American. This is your birthright. Many people reinvent themselves because they want to be more successful, to make more money, to achieve greater status. Then there are men like David Hartman. He was already a successful dramatic actor, the star of television shows including NBC's Lucas Tanner. Out of a desire to stretch himself to see what else he could do, Hartman negotiated a remarkable mid-career transition in 1975 becoming the co-host of ABC's upstart news and information program, Good Morning America. The risks were substantial. But as you will learn in my two-part interview, Hartman has never allowed the possibility of failure to deter him as he pursued his version of the American dream. We are in Durham, North Carolina, with David Hartman, legendary ABC Newsman, uh, actor. Legendary is a little bit of a stretch, but go ahead. <laughs> well, go with it, you know. Uh, no, it's great to be here with you, David. Thanks for having us in your home. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Tell us about your early life, uh, your influences. You know, anticipating being with you today, uh, I, I rethought again how influential your parents can be in many different ways in your entire life, and none of that influence goes away, and it's uh, useful to be able to look back and think about those things and, and be grateful for the influences, at least in my case. Grew up little town, Pelham, New York, uh, which is right on the border with the Bronx. My parents had moved from Rhode Island, where I was born, uh, when I was four. So I was really raised in, in the New York area. My parents were both absolute live wires. Dad had been a Methodist minister for many years and highly educated, my mom as well. Uh, She was offered a scholarship to Juilliard as a singer when she was out of high school, and her very conservative Rhode Island parents wouldn't let her take it. They said, Fanny, you'll go to New York and you'll be raped. And that was the end of what career my mother might have had as a singer. But they were both musical, they were both smart, but more importantly, They had a life attitude about making the most of every situation, of appreciating what was going on around them, about respect for people. Uh, They always used to say, respect people until they give you a reason not to. And that was who they were. And with a bright and sunny dispositions and always thinking that... um, that they could make a difference in some small way in other people's lives on a regular basis. That's who they were. And that rubs off. What did they teach you about aspiration? They said, essentially, 
you can do whatever you decide you want to do. And most importantly, the responsibility is yours. Nobody is responsible for you except you. So get that in your head early, which my older brother and I did, that it was up to us to decide what do we want to do with our lives, how much responsibility do we have to make something of our lives, and in what way. And uh, that was part of daily living from the time we were really young. But what was so interesting was that they were interested in almost everything that went on around them, whether in a day-to-day life, whether it was uh, national and foreign affairs, whether it was music, and there was tons of music in our home. They were just very glued in, clued in to being alive every minute. And they said, it was by example, you know, you can do the same thing. So I guess I got the message. And, uh, and their message was also, if something is of interest to you, then figure out a way to try out doing it in some way. Now, that's a value is in short supply these days, that sense of independence and personal empowerment and personal responsibility. Right on target. And growing up like that was wonderful because you were affirmed. I mean, it was studying music from the time I was five or six, the baseball thing, which didn't actually end up going anywhere, but I loved to play baseball. But they said, if there's something you think you'd like to do, try it. And if it doesn't work out, it's not a failure. You could call it a failure, but failure's good because you've just learned something. Okay, now you just tapped into something that is fundamental to what we're doing here. How did a fear of failure or a fear of not failing, how did that impact your life? It didn't. I wasn't afraid of failing. Because they made, quote, failure, unquote, a positive. Because you learned something, and you therefore were a a step above, beyond where you were before you started this attempt, whatever it might be. Then you make a new decision about what do I try now? In other words, try things. If you don't like them, try something else. But just don't sit back and do nothing and wait for somebody to come do something for you. What was something you tried as a young person that you weren't very good at? Drums. (laughs) Drums. <laughs> and, and thank goodness I had, you know, a rubber pad. That Do you think you were going to be the next Gene Krupa left, or something? Left, right, or? Right, left, left, right, right, yeah. left, left, right, right. But grew up with, with all kinds of music in our home. Opera, Broadway, jazz. I've been a big band fan since I was five. And that's been a hugely important part of my life. Who, who was your favorite? Count Basie. I mean, for years, I got acquainted with Mr. Basie and been close to the band for decades just out of pure pleasure. So the music just became part of growing up, and that became an important part of my life later on. Uh, reading, I mean, reading everything. And that became a wonderful disease, to learn, to learn every day. I mean, the idea was if you didn't learn something new every day, then you were just not paying attention, and that's a wasted day. And also the idea about take advantage of every moment, I mean, there are so many moments in a day. Use them. If you don't, the problem is yours. So how did you deal with, as a young person, wanting to be a drummer and not being any good at it? It was fine. I mean, once I realized that I couldn't get left, left, right, right, (laughs) get it straight, I thought, hey, you know, this would be kind of fun. Hell, I was only seven or something at the time and switched to violin. And I wasn't very good at that either. But, you know, there are a lot of people, particularly in the world in which we live now, that you fail at something, it crushes your spirit. Yeah. You know, it, it, clearly that didn't happen to you. No, not at all. In fact, it was, okay, make a new choice. It's time to move on. You know, do the best you can with something new. I wound up, I mean, in the instrumental area, playing a whole bunch of instruments that went better than violin and drums. I still don't know how anybody can play the violin. But anyway, so played a bunch of instruments, but then started singing. I mean, it just led, one thing led to another. But if I hadn't started at five or six with a drum pad, you know, seven or eight years later, I wouldn't have been doing all those other things. You got to start somewhere. You know, I've heard you speak uh, at some aviation events in which you were extremely eloquent about the power of freedom. Amen. The freedom of opportunity, I mean, get me started on the Constitution, but that our freedoms guarantee us opportunity to make choices. 
And if you look around the world, most people in the world, majority probably, don't have that kind of freedom. They just need to get up and hope they can get food on the table and a roof over their heads. And here in America, we're so fortunate and so blessed at that document that gives us the freedom to make choices, to try to make our lives into something that we want to make them into. And we're blessed in that. And eventually you found out you were a pretty good baseball player. Yeah, I was okay. I mean, out of high school, you know, I wasn't great. <clears throat> but well enough so so I had some offers out of high school to play. Back in those days, there were so many different levels. You started in D-ball and so on. But I was pretty sick at the end of high school, and the doctor said, don't do this now, or you won't be able to go to college. You'll be too sick. So anyway, that was the end of baseball. Oh, and that's a good point. When I came to Duke, I, as a walk-on, went, and Dick Rote was at Duke then. Duke was a very heavy baseball team. But I walked on, and the kid was left-handed, who was also a first baseman. And he was the All-American high school first baseman. Needless to say, he was the <laughs> freshman first baseman. And that same week when I decided, okay, that's off the table, there was a sign next to the Duke Chapel that said, Duke Student Radio. I was 18. I had just turned 18. And I thought, oh, that might be fun. And went in, and within two years, I was helping myself through college in commercial radio. So it's the opportunity. You see things say, oh, let's give that a shot. But again, going back to the parents' attitude, it was, it's okay. Try new stuff. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, move on. What did you learn about yourself in that radio job? How did that light you up? Well, that's a really good question. First of all, that you, you start from scratch and you learn every day and you hope you get better every day. But I think that is, we'll talk about this later, but about uh, broadcasting as a responsibility. And I realized even then that it's a public service to get on the air and present something that people can use in some constructive way in their lives every day. And that's not only an opportunity for us in broadcasting, but to me has always been a sense of deep responsibility and not to betray it ever, this opportunity and responsibility we have with these gadgets that we can send our voices out over the world. You think about it, that's really amazing. And somewhere along the way, you decide you want to try acting. That came a lot later. I, in college, it was all music, and it was ROTC and, um, and studying. It, it was economics, foreign affairs mostly. And I was already hooked on foreign affairs and politics. And, and let's, let's stop and, and talk about the, the, the times. This is the middle of the Cold War. <clears throat> it was. This is Korea, 1952, freshman through 1956. So it was the Korean War. Uh, followed by the beginning of the Cold War uh, with the Soviets. So it was a very interesting time, but it was also a time of the United States realizing that if having won World War II, that as a country, we had a responsibility to help our former enemies succeed, and that that only would not be in their best interest, we're talking about Japan and Germany, but it would be in the interest of the future of the entire world, including us. I mean, how prescient the Marshall Plan and so on. And it was a Marshall Plan essentially for Japan, except it wasn't called a Marshall Plan, but, but it was the same thing. It was us helping the Japanese and the Germans rebuild and look at what they have done. They've become two of the great powers for democracy in the world. And what did the, the Marshall Plan, what did that say about us as a country? I think it said that we have not only the opportunity, but the means and the responsibility to try to help rebuild the world after the most devastating war in history. And it was. It involved almost every nation in the world, and almost every human being was touched by World War II. And how do you reverse that? And the Marshall Plan and the ideas behind it, I think, were responsible for a lot of that growth and what's happened ever since the end of World War II. And not uh, long after Duke, you wound up in the military. Yeah, I was ROTC. I wanted to fly. Uh, as a kid, you asked about when I was in, but in grade school. Grade school for me and a lot of other kids was World War II, from grades one through four, two through five, right in there. And I sat there drawing, trying to draw pictures of airplanes, didn't do it very well. 
I never got the CG right on the Grumman Avenger. I never, <laughs> and I've always thought about that, the turret. And I never got the turret. Well, anyway, but got hooked on airplanes and loved the idea of flight. And so ROTC for four what years. What was it about flight that fascinated you? I have point? no idea. I have no idea. It's just ask anybody who loves airplanes and they'll say, I don't know. I just love airplanes. <laughs> I really don't know. Because as people are going to figure out here as we go along, that became a big part of your life. A love of aviation. Yeah, it, it has been, but it, it kind of stopped for a few decades and then picked up again. But that's that means it later, was something later really story, loved. Later yeah. story. But, so anyway, loved airplane. So ROTC uh, was commissioned the day I graduated from college. It's the way it works and worked then <clears throat> and went on active duty. The Air Force knew they needed pilots. They knew that I was six four and three quarters, which is too tall to fly. It's changed a little bit since, but only recently. And a flight surgeon, when I was on my way to primary flight school, they had one extra kid in my primary flight class, 56S. <laughs> Not that I remember. And the flight surgeon called me over. He just looked at me and said, we've got an extra kid, and we've got to get rid of one of you some way. And I said, well, looks like you just found the way. And he said, yeah, you're out. Now, did that break your heart? Oh, my God. Oh, it was horrible. I got on the phone and a pay phone in San Antonio, Texas at Lackland Air Force Base and called home. And it was the toughest phone call I'd ever made in my life that I couldn't go learn to fly. But, and here's the but, it goes back. And literally within a day or two, whatever, the idea was get over it. There are more ways to skin the cat. So start figuring something else out. That's not going to be it, flying airplanes. And things worked out okay. Things worked out. Yeah. So anyway, three years active duty, great experience, strategic air command, temporary duty, Thule, Greenland, up near the North Pole for three months at one stretch. You know, just had a great experience, young, you know, leadership opportunity. Now let's talk about the, the Cold War at that point and, and your yep. role in it. Well, my tiny weenie role, I was maintenance and supply. But, but but the point is that, that this was going to create uh, a knowledge that you were going to use it later on. Very much so. Yes, correct. And, uh, yeah, we were a tanker wing, KC-97s. It was before the big jet tankers, of the Boeing 707. And we had 42 airplanes in the wing, KC-97, Stratocruiser, but the refueling airplanes. And... And let's remind people that uh, at that point, we had B-52s circling the globe. We did. That's right. And when we went, uh, well, when we were, our permanent base was in central Maine in Bangor, but our temporary duty base was Thule, Greenland, up near the North Pole. And you're right. The B-52s would fly Alaska up to us. We would refuel them. They'd fly back down to the East Coast and back to Montana or wherever, or vice versa. And, um, And why were they flying? Like that. They were to show the Soviets that we, one, have atomic weapons, and two, we can drop them on you anytime. That was the message. And it's when I bought my first, another facet of all this, 35 millimeter single lens reflex camera. Take pictures. <clears throat> and I started up at Thule uh, flying just for, I didn't have, I wasn't rated or anything, but I would go up with the tankers all the time. And just for the experience of flying around with them, as they refueled B-52s and RB-47s, reconnaissance B-47s, which were then flying down over the Soviet Union, taking pictures. It was before satellites. So, and I have a lot of those photographs now of B-52s in 1957 uh, up near the North Pole. So that, you know, that all goes into your hopper and interesting, you know, uh, learning about the military and what it does and what it doesn't do and so on. So, again, another rich life experience. Just put it in the hopper and at some point it'll become useful to you in some way or other. Explain to the, the kids today who really don't understand what the Cold War felt like. It was, uh, there was a the fear factor. I mean, we've seen, you know, the pictures on television these days of, um, and by the way, television was in its infancy in those days, uh, just in the mid-50s, black and white TV sets for the most part. 
radio was still dominant in those days. It became known, the acronym is MAD, M-A-D, Mutually Assured Destruction. And the Soviets then had atomic weapons. The idea was, we both have all these weapons and we can destroy the planet, so let's not use them. And that was the Cold War. And that went on for decades until the wall came down in 1989. And that's another amazing story about the Berlin Wall coming down. But uh, that's a lot later. Uh, so this is all life experience in the military. Now, at that point, I didn't mention much about the music background, but the singing background. And I started studying singing and opera and all of that. But through high school and all through college, I sang a lot. And again, that was another one of these. They loved music, loved sports, started like broadcasting, you know, like management to a point because of the Air Force experience. But the music was really important. And a roommate of mine in the military, we both liked musical theater. I grew up with it. My parents took me to Broadway from the time I was six, seven years old. Do you remember your first show? Yes. It was called Hell's a Poppin', 19, I don't know, maybe 39 or 40. It was a review. But then after that, it was Song of Norway. Edvard Grieg. Wonderful musical at the time. And then the original cast of Oklahoma. Now, that's going back a ways. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I fell in love with Broadway because my parents loved it, too. Uh, Broadway musicals. So I had this love of musicals. And my roommate in the Air Force said, you know what? We both love theater. He had a master's from Harvard and was the civilian who was running the Air Force base. And I was due to get out of the if leave active duty since I couldn't fly. I just said, I'm going to leave, and did. And um, he said, you know, we both love this theater stuff. While we're young, I was just, what, 22, 23 maybe? He said, while we're young and we have other options, what would it be like if we both went and maybe tried to do some musical theater? And it was like, not really? I mean, we both had degrees. We were going to business or Why something. not, right? Why not? And that goes back to parents, too. They said, hey, if you get it in your bonnet, take the chance. Take the risk. Because you can always reverse it uh, whenever you decide you want to reverse it if you don't do it. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. Now, risk. Yeah. The power of risk to reverberate through life. Talk about that. Well, in, in this case, it was, I knew that I had, it wasn't that much risk, in that I knew I could fall back. I'd had job offers from major corporations out of college, out of the Air Force, to go work in business. <clears throat> but the thought of putting on a suit every morning and going to the office did not resonate with me. And I respected it a lot, but I just thought, I'm not sure I want to do that. And the music idea, theater, said, hey, well, let's give it a shot. What can happen in a year, two, three? Hey, go right back. And you got a fallback. So it wasn't as risky in retrospect as it sounded. And so I just started from scratch, went in theater. He decided not to. He, in fact, he always said, you took the chance, I didn't. Now, he became <laughs> senior executive vice president of <laughs> Sheraton Hotels. He didn't do too badly <laughs> along, along the way. But I went to musical theater and spent five years or so doing that. And it was, quote, Great fun. I learned a lot, not just about theater, but about dedication, discipline, all that stuff that goes into any job form, any challenge. You got to learn stuff about. I mean, people. What, may, what may, makes you tick? Right. People may forget you were on Broadway. Yeah. So yeah, I did two Broadway shows, but one of them was really great, and that was the original Hello Dolly, but <clears throat> with Carol Channing. With Carol, right? Who just passed away recently rest what was that like uh, what talk to me about the daily experience 
of having to, first of all, you're going through it every day, and some days you're probably great. Some days you're a little bit off. How do you how do you bring it? Every well, day? You, well, that's that's good observation uh, for somebody who's not in theater. I, I'm gathering you're not haven't done theater. Uh, that's where the discipline comes in. You realize that every time you walk out there, you better do the best job you can do. And that's where the discipline comes in of being in condition, of being at your best at a certain hour of the day, which, you know, is in the evening most times. But uh, you just learn about yourself and your ability to do the best you can under any circumstances. In this case, though, David Merrick said, you, uh, because I had a small role in the second act, Rudolph the Headwaiter, really small role. And David said, or at the time it was Mr. Merrick. Mr. Merrick said, David, I want to give you two choices. Either understudy Charles Nelson Riley in the role of Cornelius, or be our fourth stage manager and learn production. And I said, that's no-brainer, production, because I already was thinking producer. And David said to me at the time, you're a producer. I might almost pull you out of the show and have you come to the office and I'll teach you to become a producer, which I was, was flattering to me. But I said, I'm going to stay right where I'm put. And so I was the fourth of four stage managers with certain duties every day. I was in charge of props. I was assigned to Carol 24-7, and, uh, and I ran the first act. That's a whole theater thing about running the first act, but I won't go into that. But So anyway, for us, for a two-year period, for all four of us, it was 24-7. It was seven days a week, six days performing and working production. And the seventh day, we were all tied up in production things. So that was seven days a week for two years. And I wouldn't trade a second of it. It was a wonderful experience because very few people get to do a show like that. You know, if you're going to do one Broadway musical, make it one of the best 10 of all time or whatever it was. And so that was another wonderful experience. But there was something gnawing at me that it was not enough. I honestly did not think, and I'm, this is true, I wasn't that good a singer. I was okay. I certainly wasn't a dancer worth a hoot. In other words, I had a finite potential career in that, and I knew it. But I was grateful for the experience and said, I need something more. That goes back to when I was a kid, parents saying, what can you do? What contribution can you make? And that's when I started thinking about television and writing and potentially producing. So that was a huge jump for me to make that next step to do something. And that wound up, of course, being television, producing, Good Morning America, and so on. How did you get your first big break in television? A casting director from Universal Pictures. I had been sent to meet with this woman in New York, and she said, you might be a candidate to be in this particular movie with Doris Day. I thought, oh, okay. But at the time, and she said, we need something of you on film in a Western, kind of like a Western thing. And she called me a couple of months later and said, there's a commercial for AT&T where they're going to introduce area codes. This is in the early 60s. I did the commercial where I'm on a horse and said, Denver's area code is so-and-so, and I did partner, I was on a horse and whatever. So it was only like, I don't know, 40 seconds of film. And they sent it out to California, the studio, and they hired me to be in this movie with Doris Day <laughs> in a small part. And Andy Devine and some wonderful people in that. So that started that. And, you know, what, was that a different feeling? Did you feel fulfilled in a, in a way that you didn't on, on the stage? No, not particularly. The stage was actually more fun, and, but it was just an interesting transition. There's nothing like doing film. That stuff is nothing like being, well, not nothing like, but it's very unlike being on a stage. But did, you know, three television series that were successful. But I realized, and I'm, I'm being honest about this. I wasn't that good at what I was doing. I was successful. I was making a good living at it in those TV series and a few. Oh, well, that's a very self-aware thing to say, considering that you know millions well, of people. Well, when you're surrounded, it. when you're surrounded and working with people who had won Oscars, 
And you look and you start saying, wait, what do they do? I, I, and I would work with some of these people and look with them, you know, being in a scene with them and think, I don't know how this person is doing what they're doing right now. I couldn't do that. They're amazing at, cl- the, at the craft. But clearly you were very likable. Yeah. You uh, had really good skill, but in, but in terms of what did you not have that you, you didn't think you needed to have? I don't know. I was just kind of journeyman, and I didn't see what the end game was. But in the process, and this is key, one of the TV series was a medical program called The Baldwins, where I played a doctor, and E.G. Marshall and John Saxon played doctors, the three of us. And working with E.G. was a life-learning experience, by the way. You talk about learning from masters. Uh, it was incredible. We were using the program. We never did any story that wasn't based on true story. And I asked the producer if I could start doing some of the research during the off-season. And they said, be our guest, sure. So during the off-season, seven, seven, eight months, I traveled the country visiting medical centers and becoming familiar as a layperson with the medical community and so on. It was just more exciting to learn every day in those circumstances. And I realized then television has a responsibility to inform and put information into people's lives that they can use in a constructive way. And that can even be done in dramatic television as opposed to documentary. But at the same time, I thought documentary, and this is now 1973-4, was what was already in my head. And because I'd done all this research for the medical program, ABC, and that was on NBC, by the way, but on ABC, came to me and said, because you've generated all this background in medicine, would you like to produce some medical specials for us? And that was it. It was like the sun came out and... And some people know at 20 what they want to do. Some people know at 14. Some know at 30. I was a late bloomer. And it just took time, day at a time, try stuff. Did that work? Yeah, okay. But boy, when I hit that and I produced my first special in 1974, and we showed the birth of a child for the first time on American television. And it had angered us at the medical program earlier for four years that we had tried to show a birth of a child, uh, which had never been done on American TV. And NBC wouldn't let us. Uh, Standards, practices, whatever, the censors, whatever they call it. And we thought that was stupid. And so anyway, produced the program and ABC even called and they said, we're now getting concerned that when we see the birth of a child, we're also going to see the mother's, uh, uh, I said, labia? (laughs) Vagina? Oh, God! Those words, we can't say those in public. Yes, we can. Hey, it's just anatomy. And so I said to them, the censors, I said, look, come over here. So the censors from ABC called and, you know, and said, what if we see the mothers? And then they said, well, what, what if the baby is a boy? I said, you're concerned, perhaps, about maybe seeing a penis? Well, of course, the other end of the phone went dead. I mean, they just didn't know how to act. This was at an era, by the way, when it was a big deal for Archie Bunker's toilet to be heard. <laughs> exactly. Yep, early 70s. So, um, and then he said, if it's a girl baby, I said, well, now we're right back to that, aren't we? I said, look, let's do this. We are almost finished editing. I said, send a team over from your office. Anybody you want to sit in the, in the control room with us and look at a rough cut. But I said, make sure one of them is a woman, because this industry is so controlled by men for so long. And I said, we need a woman to sit there and watch with us. By the time we got to the actual birth of the child, of course, everybody in the control room, the tears are rolling down the face. I mean, it's, you know, it's unbelievable process. And, and as I said to them, look, We're not showing anatomy. We're showing the greatest miracle on the planet, which is the birth of a child. There's a big difference. And they got it. Took a while, but they got it. So we did show that program. And it was, it was what it communicated what I wanted, how I wanted to use television. And how did you know how to do that? I don't know. You were an actor. 
Yeah, yeah. But I, when you're around, I remember when I started, at the very beginning, that first movie, I said to the producer, I don't know anything about this stuff, about movie making. Zip. And I said, how can I learn about it? And he looked at me and smiled. He said, I'm going to sit you down with one of the best editors in the motion picture business, and you're going to sit there for a week or two. And you will come out of that editing room, you will know way more than you think you know about what it takes to, to make movies. So anyway, I was always a student of the process and so on. So. But anyway, as far as producing is concerned, that story, it's a story. It's telling a story. And, and, and it was had a doctor, an OBGYN, Phil Brooks, still a good friend. And what was it that that got you about that, that made that light you up? Just that we can use television to bring information to people that they can apply in their own lives. Because there were a lot of lessons. We followed six couples through their pregnancies. And so we learned a lot in that whole process. Uh, Decision-making and how to get good prenatal care and why it's important and all of that. I mean, it was a tutorial for lay people on the business of deciding big word, deciding to have children, not by mistake, uh, et cetera. And so that was exciting to say, hey, this is, this is how we should use television. Um, and that, for me, was this giant leap, <laughs> not for mankind, but for me. Uh, it was like, okay, it's taken me a long time, but I found it. This is it. This is what I want to do with myself. And, and you, you, that was a, a visceral thing. You oh, really yeah. knew that was it. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was mental, visceral, every way from Sunday. And every day was exciting. The whole process of learning every day. You know, the business of making documentaries, I don't have to tell you this, <clears throat> is you're constantly learning new stuff. And that, to me, is really exciting. I would have made a really good researcher uh, because I love doing the homework. And that has been true my entire career. I love doing the homework. When you had some success as an actor, you were able to uh, parlay that into some fringe benefits. And one of them was scratching your baseball itch. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. What... Um, yeah, it was just pure fun. What, I was, what, 30 maybe? Something like that. And at Dodger Stadium in L.A., they had each year, I guess, they probably still do it, they have a, a three-inning game before a Dodgers game where they play the sports writers, sportscasters against actors, you know, all of whom have a little bit of baseball in their background. And it's just PR for the Dodgers and great fun. And so, and I played for the actor game. And when I came up to bat... I ripped the ball to deep left, and it was right up against, and the left fielder went back on the warning track and caught it just in front of the fence, or the little, at the time, it was just a little low, you know, waist-high thing. And when he came back in, he caught it, and I yelled at him, something nasty, and and said, how dare you? I almost hit a ball out in Dodger Stadium, and you had to catch it. You did Whatever, we laughed about it. But at any rate, as a result of that, the, the Dodgers guys said, oh, you can play a little bit. And they said, why don't you come out and hang out with us at Dodger Stadium? You know, pregame some days if you're free. Because we get, you know, every day they do the same thing every day and they love a little change of pace and something. So I did for several weeks. I went out and, and one day Wes Parker, who was the first baseman for the Dodgers, at the time, had a pulled hamstring. And how at the beginning of a ball game, before a ball game, they do what's called infield, where a coach will hit ground balls and they throw it around and throw it back in and so on. Wes came to me and said, quote, pick me up at first in the infield. And which meant I'm not going to go out there right now. You go out in my place with the other three infielders who were all, you know, major league players. Pick me up on infield. You do it. So I said, Wes, I should not do that. He said, yeah, it's fine. Go ahead. It's fine. It's fun. 
Well, it's fine. And he said, I checked with the guys. They're fine with it. And the coach is fine with it, or the manager. So I did it. Well, the vice president of the Dodgers saw me out there, and it went fine. But he saw me, and he came, and he said, you can't work out with us anymore uh, because it's inappropriate or whatever. So I said, fine. But a week or two later, I got a call from Horace Stoneham, who was the owner of the San Francisco Giants up in San Francisco. And he said, uh, I hear from so-and-so at the Dodgers, who was the manager at the time. I can't remember now who it was. It wasn't Tommy Lasorda. It was somebody before Tommy. But he said, uh, listen, you're welcome to come work out with us in the Giants anytime you want. And I thought, whoa, what fun. So anyway, for several years, four or five years, um, I went through spring training for two, three weeks every year with the Giants. And I'd go on road trips and throw batting practice and now, that was just pure, infantile fun. At the age of 30, <laughs> it was just fun. Well, it was a perk you were able to get. Because, it was a perk. You know? It was a perk, yep. And I you know, took advantage of it. It was great fun. And uh, you had a memorable day with uh, the great Willie Mays. Yes. It was the first day of a season, I don't know what year. It was early 70s somewhere, some two, three, somewhere in there. And at the time, NBC did uh, a Saturday afternoon uh, television of a baseball game. Tony Kubek and Joe Garagiola. Oh, man. Good for you. Garagiola, one of the youngest people to play in World Series. And became a great colleague friend, by the way. Anyway, I was out in the outfield during batting practice, uh, just catching fly balls and throwing the ball in. <coughs> and, and I was in center field. Pre-game. And Mays came out, it was a center fielder, of course, as the outfielders did when it got closer to game time to see where the sun was, to how, you know, sunglasses, they flipped down sunglasses, and they wanted to know when the game started, where are they going to have to start worrying about where the sun is in their eyes and so on. So Willie came out, Buck, his nickname was, and we just stood there together and picking up balls and throwing them in. And he looked up and saw the NBC TV banner up at the broadcast box. And he leaned over to me and he said, oh, <clears throat> TV today, I'm going to have to make myself one of those catches. And I remember back to the famous catch of him in the polo grounds where he caught the ball over his head. You know, and he, was, he could do that. He could do anything. He was the greatest how, player. How, how good was Mace? Oh, my God. I mean, look, I don't, you know, I'm not a pro, but I, there wasn't anything he didn't do for Brilliantly, and a lot of people say he's the best player of all time. You got to throw a few other names in there, Ted Williams among them. Uh, but he's one of the greatest of all time. But he was, it was just a joy to watch him. It was like watching water go over a waterfall. Nothing, nothing was labored, nothing was difficult. It just looked like the, that's the way everybody plays baseball. <clears throat> but he said, I'll have to make one of those catches today. And sure enough, the ball was hit to deep right. Bobby Bonds was playing right field. And it was a chain-link fence. <clears throat> Mays came all the way over from right center and leaped, leapt up, and literally practically took the ball out of Bobby Bonds' glove, practically. And they both fell down, and Willie Wynn knocked out of him. But he caught the ball, and it was the third out in the inning. But later on, later on after the game, I said, oh, you made one of those catches. And he just kind of smiled. But he was, he was something. He was something. Yeah. He, would, he did something. I asked some of the other players about him running bases. He had a thing. If he hit a ball to right, he was a right-handed hitter. But if he went the other way, they call it, and hit the ball to right field, he could round first and come to second. And at the same time, he's watching where is the ball in right field? At what point does the right fielder or center fielder get the ball and be able to throw it in? For him to make a decision about whether to round second base and try to go to third or not, whether to hold it second. And what I learned he did was he would make it look when he was approaching second base, and rounding second, he made it look, because he was looking over his shoulder, made it look like he was slowing down when, in truth, he was speeding up. And to, to diminish the possibility that a right or center field was going to try to throw him out at third. And he did that a lot. It was beautiful to watch him. It was beautiful. Talk about 
people do beautiful things in different ways in music and sports and business and banking and, and he was just something to watch your love of baseball clearly uh, came back up in your yeah. most successful series in Lucas Tanner tell me about how oh, you influenced that oh my gosh Lucas Tanner uh, tell us <laughs> you're older than you look no I can <laughs> who, who was Lucas Tanner yeah, who was Lucas Tanner and, and, yeah, yeah oh and, that's a philosophical yeah, question I'm yeah. not sure I can deal with Lucas Tanner is a series written by a, a very prolific uh, or prolific writer of drama television, Jerry McNeely. He'd been a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, teaching communications and writing. But at the same time, he was a prolific writer of TV series. And Jerry thought, let's write a series about a former baseball player who becomes a teacher and a counselor in a high school. The idea being to talk about, this is a, a program about secondary education and how to improve, again, this is a teaching program about, you know, how to achieve good secondary education. Who's involved? Parents, students, faculty, and mix those together and so on. So it's a very serious program. So they hired me to do it and, um, and working with Jerry and he said, you know, he, it, I don't think he, he had thought about the baseball thing. Maybe he had. I don't recall. But he said, let's make him a former ball player. And I said, yeah, good idea. In other words, use something that I could do skill-wise that would be maybe interesting in some way on the screen. So Jerry's from the Midwest, originally from Missouri. And he said, we're going to base the show in St. Louis because every other show is based in Santa Monica. And so let's get one out of the West Coast. So we did. We went back and he said, let's make him a, and he figured it all out. Let's make him a former Cardinal. He got hurt. He couldn't play anymore, but loved to teach, etc. All backstory that Jerry uh, figured out and all nice stuff. We did that. And I asked Jerry where he got the name Tanner. Naming characters on television is tricky. There are all kinds of rights apparently involved. But he said, I was on an airplane in Chicago and reading the sports page. And he said, the manager of the Chicago White Sox was Chuck Tanner. And he said, I saw that in the newspaper and I thought, Tanner. Oh, that's a good idea. I wonder if Chuck that's Tanner. that's where Lucas Tanner came from. The <laughs> Lucas he made up some other way. I but. wonder if Chuck Tanner, of course, was the uh, later with the Braves. Among okay. other teams. I wonder if he ever do that. Well, I don't know. That's a good, that's a good <laughs> question. I don't know. So that's where Lucas Tanner came from. And, and he was this wonderful teacher uh, who respected students a lot. Um, anyway, it was a one-year series. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, it was canceled after one season. It was pretty successful. It followed a little house on the prairie in a two-hour block from 8 to 10 at night, Eastern and Pacific time. And it was what NBC called the family block of two programs, Little House and Lucas Tanner. Whole family could watch kind of thing. And when we were looking into the next season, the head of the studio at Universal, Frank Price, got a phone call and got us on it, the producer of the program and me, with the head of programming from NBC, whose name I absolutely remember, will not repeat. He said, we think that Lucas Tanner can be in the top 10. It's in the top 20, but we think it'd be top 10. But to do that, we want Lucas Tanner to sleep with one of the high school girl students. We want more drugs, want more car chases, want more violence. And Mr. Price said to the producer at the time, what do you think? This is in a phone call. And the producer said, that's not the program that we signed up for, and I won't do it. And he said, David, what about you? I said, I doubled down on what he just said. There's no way I would do that program. It's an absolute contradiction of the values that we wanted to put in this show and have for the last year. And Frank then said to the executive NBC, and I agree, we won't do that. And the executive said, you're canceled. And we all said, fine. That was the end of Lucas Tanner. Uh, That's it, a pretty gutsy thing for all of you to do at that point. It was how we felt about the program and what we did every day with it or tried to do with it every day. Did you think that your television career maybe was over at that point? I, no, I don't know. I, I, just, I was already starting down the producer route. 
So it wasn't like I didn't have options. But it had I, to have been a devastating moment to walk away from a, a show that was successful, had an audience, had a much bigger mm -hmm. audience than a lot of the shows today that, that are oh, true. very successful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it just it just had to do with the values that we, we put into the program and we respected and liked, and we weren't going to do anything different. It was easy. It was not a big deal. Largely out of the uh, success of the documentary that you did, you get a call from uh, ABC. Bob Shanks. He had been the executive in charge of Late Night, which is where that Birth and Babies program that we did went. And he and I were acquainted, and he knew about my interest in public affairs and a lot of other stuff besides that one program. And called me one day, and I happened to be in New York. I had two movie ideas, and I was staying, oddly enough, the Warwick Hotel across the street from ABC. Pure coincidence. And he said, Bob got me on the phone and said, I've been trying to reach you for a few days. At your answering service. We had answering services in those days. <laughs> no cell phones. <laughs> no cell phones. No beepers. And, yeah. No internet. <laughs> None of the above. <laughs> so he said, I've got something I want to talk to you about. And I said, great. He said, where are you? I said, I'm across the street at the Warwick. He said, what? He thought I was in California. <clears throat> and he said, can you come up this afternoon at, I don't know, 2 o'clock and see me in the office? I said, sure. So I knew that ABC at the time was looking to put a new program on to counter the Today Show and CBS Morning News because ABC at that point was not a full-service network. It was not on in the morning. And competitively, they had to be. Anyway, we sat down in, in the office, and he said, I have an idea. And I said, what? And he said, well, we're going to put a new program on. It's We've already entitled it Good Morning America. And would you like to be the host? And I mean, it was that simple. And I said, I think it's a terrific idea. This was the chancy. Not leaving Lucas Tanner behind. This was the risky line. I said, it depends on what you want to do with the program. I'll tell you what. We're going to break it right there. We're going to leave that as the television cliffhanger. Because we're going to come back to this in episode two with David Hartman. Join us next week. Thanks, David. My pleasure. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever. <laughs>